Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, the trampling on one another to his disciples, saying, What against the yeast of the Pharisees hid nothing concealed that will be closed, or hidden that will not be made known. You have right, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms were proclaimed from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and are more who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, so one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all. You are worth more you. Whoever publicly acknowledges me as the Son of Man will fall. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be anyone who blasphemes against the broad synagogues, rulers and authorities. Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Take Brother Eritans with me. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between? Then he said to them, Watch your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not get in and it's perilous. What shall I do? I place my crops. He said, Tear down my barns and build bigger ones and surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of here. Eat. Be to him. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you sell? This is how it will be. How many of you enjoy jigsaw puzzles? A few. It's been years since I've put together a puzzle. But sometimes when I open the Bible, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm looking at a pile of puzzle pieces. And today's text started that way for me. For what do leaven and light and fear and birds and hair have to do with each other? Well, it it seemed like the the table after the fortune cookies are red. And I'm tasked with taking all of those little pieces of paper and, and, and somehow tying it together into one cohesive story. And I'm sure these pieces put together, or the the fortune cookie fortunes put together, may resemble some of the end-of-unit essays that many of our teachers are grading this weekend before turning in their final grades. But just as zooming out from the individual puzzle pieces and looking at the picture on the box can help us to arrange the colors that resemble some sort of a finished product. Zooming out to last week's message and looking at these verses in the context of the previous chapter brought me some new insight. Because last week, Jesus was primarily warning those who presumed to be influencers 
those who want to influence the lives of others. And in today's text, he speaks to those who are tempted to simply fall in line with their influence. And so I ask the question, who are you trying to win their approval? Do you have divided loyalties? Are you trying to please God? Are you trying to please parents? Are you trying to please teachers? Are you trying to please your boss? Are you trying to please your friends? Whose approval are you trying to gain? Because peer pressure is not just a teen obstacle. Because we all like to be liked. For this sermon this morning, rather than move and to keep the tension there, I'm actually going to show you the picture on the box. I'm going to show you the big picture, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at some of the pieces that fit together. The big picture, the takeaway is that the distractions of this world cannot divert us from the importance of eternity. I really enjoyed our time of worship this morning. For God gives me more than 10,000 reasons to praise Him. And after 10,000 years of praising Him, then forevermore. Because we will appear before an eternal God. An eternal God who is good and gracious. And so if we can get our eyes set on that time scale and focused in on that good and gracious God, sometimes our loyalties then will kind of fall right into place. Let's start by identifying why the influence of others can be considered a distraction. The influence of many is described as hypocrisy. Because sometimes the hypocrisy of others is always looking back rather than looking forward. Always looking back rather than looking forward. And I say that because Jesus uses the analogy, he uses the word picture of leaven. Because leaven draws from the past. One of the biggest and least used kitchen appliances in our collection is the bread maker. And the successful use of a bread maker requires the use of yeast, which in our family comes in packets like that that is behind me. However, In the early 1990s, a recipe spread like wildfire through our little town in western Oklahoma. I'm sure many of you have tasted the Amish friendship bread. This act of friendship begins with a baggie that looks like paste that has to be tended for 10 days and then blessing three other friends before the baking ever begins. Because the key to successful Amish friendship bread 
does not rely on a new packet of yeast. It is totally dependent upon repeating what has already been done before. And the only way to have good friendship bread is if the people before you had good friendship bread and the people before them had good friendship bread. And so that leaven that is passed from generation to generation is dependent upon that original starter. So rather than yeast packets, when Jesus says, beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, he's talking about inheriting that starter baggie and all that goes along with it. This rote and mindless repetition of the way that we've always done it is the hypocrisy that Jesus addresses in this paragraph. Beware of the hypocrisy of, well, we've always done it that way. A lot of arguments are happening today because some Americans want to conserve, preserve, or to reclaim traditions from the past, while others want to progress to a new future. Newsflash. All the past is not perfect, and all progress is not positive. We need to be able to enjoy the flesh and to spit out the bones of both perspectives rather than a mindless repetition of what has always happened before. See, Jesus is introducing to his disciples a new kingdom. And he says, don't get caught in the treadmill of of we've always done it that way. Notice in verse 2, though, the tense of the verbs changes. Compared to the leaven of the past, in verses 2 and 3, we have four future verbs. For Jesus says, right now, this is the situation. But as we look forward, things will be revealed. They will be known. They shall be heard and they shall be proclaimed. Jesus is trying to move the focus to let's look at what's going to happen rather than just repeating what has happened. I appreciate the summer speed camp that our high school athletes get to enjoy. And I did say enjoy, even though I don't have to get up early in the morning to go to speed camp. Because the secluded things that happen in that training room get revealed on the field, the court, the mat, and the track. And a lot of success of our student athletes can be tied back to what happened in secret. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't be deceived. What happens in secret will be revealed and explained in public. As soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose to do something that he had prohibited, God unveiled a plan that would look forward towards a remedy. Throughout Christ's ministry, he gave hints about his future purpose. Before he ascended, he told the disciples that the Holy Spirit was going to come at some day in the future. And he left us with the promise that as he left, he will come again. The entire Bible story is looking forward. But the Pharisees wanted to keep looking in their rearview mirror. 
When doing a puzzle, the first thing I do is to turn all the pieces color side up. And as I'm doing that, I make a pile of the edge pieces and the middle pieces. And I separate those into two groups. And today's text also divides into two groups. The first group of instructions is given to, verse 4, my friends. And in verse 13, the second group is identified as the crowd. So let's begin by looking at verses 4 through 12, where Jesus has words for the team. These are the insiders. Even though verse 1 says that there were many thousands of people who had gathered, I see these eight verses as kind of a side conversation where Jesus is just focusing upon those who are closest to him. And I hope you consider yourself in that group of those who are closest to Jesus. And he says in verses 4 through 7, My friends, we must maintain a proper focus. Jesus says, I admit that there are many who are vying for your compliance, and sometimes we fear those who have influence over our physical bodies, but Jesus reminds them that uh, we are being observed by a caring and a watchful Heavenly Father who deserves our utmost respect. And if we're more concerned with our friends than we are with God, we do not have a proper focus. Jesus says, remember your good and careful father. I had a conversation with one of our young ladies who was involved in showing cattle this summer. And she told me that while she is in the ring, she can't be concerned with the spectators, the other livestock, or the other competitors. She can't be distracted by what last week's judge decided with the very same cattle. She has to remain focused on this judge for this event and make sure that he sees what he is looking for in the situation. Pretty accurate description of showing cattle? Pretty much. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true for us. We can't worry about the other people. We can't worry about other religions. We can't worry about what happened last week. Our focus needs to be on our judge and what he is looking for in us right now. Because you, as well as me, I am performing, you are performing for an audience of one. In two weeks, many of us will decorate graves of our loved ones. And I've seen thousands of grave markers in my lifetime. But I have never seen a grave marker that mentions what kind of a car he drove or how many blue ribbons she won at the fair. I've never seen a single comment on a grave about how fancy the house or how wide the spread of the ranch. I've never seen one high school athletic statistic or grade point average. Because when it's all said and done, we are performing for an audience of one. And Jesus says we are to stay focused on what matters most to the true judge. Now, a side note should not be ignored because some people accuse preachers today of being afraid of mentioning hell. I'm not afraid to mention it because Jesus mentioned it. 
In verse 5, Jesus says, Hell is a real place with real torment prepared for those who rebel against God. And unlike the claim of a preacher whom I once respected, whose book got him an interview with Oprah, hell is not the painful experiences we have on earth. Jesus says that hell is a place where we may be cast into. And when Jesus states that God has the authority to cast into, he is speaking of a location, not just a circumstance. series trying to interrupt my sermon, tells us that we need to have a proper focus. But not only should we have a proper focus on the right judge, but verses 8 through 12 tells us that when we are focused on him as our judge, we need to have the proper message. For the proper message begins in verse 8 and verse 9, where we are told to declare Christ. Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you. This word acknowledge, Luke is using a word that is very rich with potential meaning. As a matter of fact, there's four main uses of the word. And and the biblical experts who understand language far better than I say that in this situation, it's this meaning number four. That is, to acknowledge something that is ordinarily done in public, or specifically, it is a profession of our allegiance. When Jesus says, you acknowledge me before men, it's not just that I believe that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. It's not just that I believe that Jesus died 2,000 years ago. It's not even a profession that says, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. This word acknowledge means I am making a profession that I am a lead, I am allegiant, I am allied, I surrender to Christ. And Jesus is saying, if you say before men that you are allegiant to him, he'll take care of you before the angels. This is more than just a I'm good or I'm religious but it actually comes into a verbal acknowledgement. When was the last time that you professed allegiance to Christ in public? T-shirts, bumper stickers, Facebook graphics are all good. But when did you last use your voice and tell somebody that you are allegiant to Christ? We've seen those who kneel, those who raise a fist, and those who stand respectfully with their hat off, with their hand over their heart. But who was the last person who heard you say, my allegiance to Jesus Christ is more important than my team or my politics? See, we first have to have a right focus, then we have to have the right message. And the message is that we declare Christ. Secondly, in verse 10, our message has to be one where we discern truth. Back in Luke chapter 11, verse 15, the people accused Jesus miracles of being done in the power of Satan or Beelzebub. And this act of attributing to demons 
That which the Spirit of God does is here, and in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3, called the unforgiven blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the reason this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, saying that something that God does is actually done by demons, the reason that is unforgivable is the way R.T. France comments, the Holy Spirit, by contrast, is the one who works in people's hearts to call forth a response. And to blaspheme him is ultimately and finally to reject God's call and his offer of forgiveness. That's why it's unpardonable, unforgivable. If we reject his call to repentance, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, we will never be forgiven. And so we have to discern what is the Spirit of God doing What is the spirit of this world doing? What is my flesh tempted to do? And we need to discern what is right and what is true. And finally, verses 11 and 12, we must declare Christ, we must discern truth, and we must depend upon the spirit in verses 11 and 12. Have you ever worried yourself into a tizzy over something that never happened? The common advice in these situations is simply... Deep breath, don't overthink it, and trust your training. Now, I notice here Jesus doesn't say if you are called into the courts, but when you are put on notice. We ought to have the understanding that if we boldly declare our allegiance to Christ, there are men who will misunderstand us. And we may have to explain our position, not to walk back our allegiance, but the Holy Spirit in that moment can bring to your mind things that you haven't thought about for years. We must declare Christ and depend upon his spirit to back up that declaration. The Spirit will tell you what you should say in that moment. And sometimes it may end up like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen suffered temporarily, but he was honored eternally. Sometimes it may end up like Acts chapter 16 with Peter, with the prison door swinging open and a whole household getting saved. If you trust and do what the Holy Spirit tells you to say in that moment, it may bring immediate relief. It may not, but it will always bring God's glory because it is obedience to Him. See, ours is not to manage the outcome. Our role is to be prepared and obedient to say whatever the Holy Spirit prompts us to say in that moment and to trust God to cause the outcome that He intends. Let me say that again. Our role is to be prepared and obedient to say whatever the Holy Spirit prompts us to say in that moment and to trust God to cause the outcome that he intends. Because while Jesus has been speaking to his friends in verse 4, someone in verse 13 now takes it upon himself to ask Jesus a question. 
And so Jesus makes announcements not to the friends in the locker room, but to the fans in the stands. This becomes a public announcement. As I read this paragraph, I observe that the people in the stands seem to be most concerned about stuff for themselves. Verses 13 through 14 talks about the stuff that I am given. Jesus, make sure my brother gives to me the stuff that I deserve. See, because whether you are in a wreck, need a check, or call the bull attorneys, or hire the firm that will get you the money that you deserve, we live in a society that that expects a payday. But Jesus seems very disinterested in settling a minor property dispute. They said, Jesus, tell my brother to give me what I deserve. And Jesus says, I'm not going to get involved in that. But Jesus introduces a principle in verse 15 that sets up a parable. And the principle is, is that you are more than what you have. You are more than what you have, whether you have little or have lot. And then in verses 16 through 19, it kind of goes into the story where a guy talks about what he produces and what he gathers. Now, let me say clearly that there is absolutely nothing wrong with having an abundance. What is wrong is when the abundance has us. Because notice the wording of the scripture in front of us. The man did not produce a great crop, but the land produced a crop. Who made the land? God himself. And so God caused the land to produce a bumper crop. And so there's nothing wrong with receiving an abundance from God. See, the man in Jesus' story received much wealth from the ground that God had created and the weather that God had provided. There's no problem with having wealth because men like Job, Abraham and his heirs, as well as those who financed the ministry of Jesus, the spread of the early church, had more resources than they personally needed. And because they had an abundance... Paul confessed that there were times where he knew need and there were times when he knew abundance because those whom God had given an abundance were able to share. But I notice in verse 18 that the man is not only storing grain, but he's also storing goods. I infer that he sold some crops and was collecting or hoarding stuff. I need bigger barns. Bigger sheds, more garages. And there comes a point when any collection, whether we collect pennies or figurines or toys or guns, there's a point when it becomes a verse 18 problem. Is my wealth for myself? Is my wealth for my heirs? Has God entrusted to me wealth? For generosity towards others? Maybe God has entrusted to me wealth so that the gospel could be proclaimed to the nations. There's nothing wrong with having the wealth. The problem comes in hoarding the wealth. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and following, says that God permits some people to be rich in this world in order that they can share. Galatians chapter 6 talks about financially sharing with the leaders who teach you. Romans chapter 15 talks about sharing with those who have need. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 speaks of those who have more than they need, setting apart resources so that the gospel could spread. That's why we resource things like kids going to Bible camp. That's why we support missions. It's why we hold outreaches like Vacation Bible School. None of that can be done without the financial resources, and God has blessed many of us with an abundance so that these ministries can happen. But verse 19 details a man who forgot about how to share for the good of others because he's bent only on his present comforts. Fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. In contrast to the man who forgets how to share, though, we have the last two verses of the lesson. And that's the person who is rich toward God. Verse 21 in front of us reminds me that I need to think about the future. What will benefit me and others after I breathe my last? I appreciate the anecdote that Alan Phipps shared at Kenny Stahl's memorial. Years after the Stahls lost their land to foreclosure, Kenny had a reputation as the most honest man that field office had ever dealt with. Because weeks after his foreclosure was completed, the summer's crop was finally sold at the elevator, and Kenny actually sent the landlord's portion to the company that had foreclosed on him. In that situation, like many others, honesty won over selfishness. And that honesty continues to encourage others far longer than anything that Kenny and Ruth could have bought with the proceeds from that crop. We've got to think forward. We've got to think about the legacy that we leave behind. Not to spend on selves, but to be rich towards the purposes of God. I told you at the beginning of this message that the big picture is that the distractions of this world cannot divert us from the importance of eternity. Let me highlight four things that I've told you in the last 30 minutes. Number one, Jesus warned to not fall into the hypocrisy of the past. We've got to keep looking towards the future. Jesus warned his friends, and I hope you consider yourself to be a friend of Christ, to fear the one who cares for you more than those who tempt you with immediate power. They may have a shortcut, they may have a short solution, but Jesus says, consider more importantly the one who cares for you more than them. Jesus tells all of us the importance of acknowledging him before men to confess our allegiance to him alone. And finally, Jesus reminds us that possessions are to be invested in ways that are rich toward God 
not stuff for self. See, I, I see the puzzle here showing a picture of Christ followers who are investing in their world with an eye towards eternity. And so I've chosen as a final song this morning, one that we did one time uh, back in the winter. So some of you may not be aware, but you can follow along. It's pretty easy. It's simply a song entitled Carrier, which says, I will be the one who carries the 